picture for a minute getting onto an airplane. You are 22, 23 years old, maybe somewhere in there. You say goodbye to your parents at the airport. You get on an airplane, a wide body, 747, 767. You get on board and you take two, maybe three flights to connect across continents and 9,000 miles. Up to this point, you have never flown on an airplane. You've never left the country. You speak the language where you're headed, but you don't know when you will see your parents again. You don't know if you're going to make it the next couple of years, if you're gonna have the money to survive the next couple of years, if you're gonna succeed in what you're doing, where you're going. Imagine you get on that airplane to travel 9,000 miles away from your family, your friends, everyone you've known your entire life for an opportunity at school, for an opportunity at graduate school, for an opportunity to get a degree at a university you've always wanted to go to, in a place you've always wanted to visit, maybe a place you've always wanted to experience, but you have no idea what life will look like. In 1979 to have done this, meant you didn't have a cell phone. You couldn't text back and check in with your parents at every connection. You couldn't Skype them when you got to where you were going. You could write letters, but across 9,000 miles of earth and ocean, it might take weeks for that letter to arrive at your parents' house. So you could write letters. You could make a phone call that would cost an exorbitant amount of money. So when you arrive, it's incumbent on you to make friends, to make connections, to build yourself into the professional you want to be, that you envision, and ultimately to make some really important decisions about your life. Are you going to stay or are you going to go home after the educational experience ends? Picture doing something like that now, and that, that on its own might induce some stress, let alone 1979, before the cell phone, before uh, regular access to the internet, before people had personal computers in their houses. <clears throat> 20 years before, in 1959, Cuba underwent a communist revolution. If you don't know too much about the history, I won't bore you with too many of the details. Suffice it to say, prior to the communist revolution, Cuba was ruled by a dictator. So perhaps not the ideal state to begin with. But for a lot of reasons, the descent of Cuba from the Batista regime into the Castro regime was going from a tolerable situation a situation that was U.S. friendly to an intolerant, dangerous situation. Many people fled or attempted to flee the Castro-led communist revolution in the late 50s and early 60s. 
Today, the Cuban exile community in South Florida is, is one of the better known communities when it comes to political conversations and political constituencies. And don't worry, this, this episode is not a political discussion, but simply to provide you some context. One of the reasons why the Cuban exile community is such a key player in South Florida is because of, first off, how long it has been since the revolution, right? How deep of an effect that revolution had on Cubans and their descendants and how painful it still can be for Cubans and for Cuban descendants to look back on their family's history and see what was taken from them, to see the lives that were lost, the lives that were permanently affected, and to be totally honest, to see how ineffectual the U.S. was at the time in trying to help. I know I said I wouldn't bore you with the details, but just one more detail of significance. John F. Kennedy is remembered probably as, as one of the U.S.'s great presidents for, for various reasons, and I'm not here to debate whether he is great or not. He is, he is remembered as an American president for initiating our part in the space race, for challenging us to go to the moon inside of the decade. Unfortunately, of course, he's also well known for being one of our few chief executives who was assassinated. But he also presided over an early catastrophe from a military standpoint, from an intelligence standpoint, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion and counter-revolution in 1961. And I only learned recently that my mom, who fled Cuba with her parents at a young age, fleeing Castro's communist revolution in the early 1960s, really harbored some deep-seated, we'll say negative feelings perhaps resentment. I don't know if it elevated to hatred because I never got to ask her. But I only just recently learned how, how, how deeply effective that failure was to her and presumably to many others like her. We had the chance to help the military force of exiles that we had deployed to the Bay of Pigs and we opted against it because we didn't want to get into a war with the Soviet Union. For better or worse, that decision cemented Castro's win over the island of Cuba. And his regime lives on today. Despite Raul Castro's recent announcement of stepping down, the island nation remains uh, a strict socialist country. Now, before you, well, I'm sure you're wondering where this episode's going to go. Um, and that's fair. Here's what I want you to focus on, though. My mother fled Castro's Cuba in the early 1960s. The family landed in South Florida. My grandfather was a physician. He had to take some pretty low-level work to get moving, to get started, eventually was able to earn his way back as a practicing physician in the United States. My mother was a math whiz, majored in chemistry. That gene did not pass on to me, in case you're curious, but... She was smart as a whip, majored in chemistry, 
worked in healthcare, moved west to Texas, and in the early 1980s, while she was working in a university department office, a graduate student walked in who had traveled 9,000 miles by airplane to earn a PhD in chemical engineering. My father left India in 1979. And from what I understand, from what I gather, I know he'll correct the story when he hears it, but from what I gather, the program offered by the Indian government was they would pay you, they would give you money to fly to the U.S., earn your graduate degree, in his case, a PhD, a doctorate in chemical engineering, and then you could either return to India and join uh, the ranks of professionals in India, or if you chose to stay in the U.S. or stay abroad, you would have to pay back the money that the government provided for you to make the trip. As far as I know, he didn't know yet what he was going to do when he left. But eventually the decision became clear when he met a woman working in his department office in Houston, Texas at Rice University in the early 1980s. I'm the child of an Indian graduate student immigrant on my father's side and a Cuban mother who fled Castro's Cuba in the early 1960s. There are a lot of details to the story I don't know. But of the few things I do know from this story, from this history of mine, it is that I do not believe there are many places in this world, on this earth, where someone like me could exist. There are not many places on this earth that would welcome with open arms, not just an Indian graduate student and a Cuban refugee, but the marriage that would ensue between them. You know, lately I have encountered friends of mine and acquaintances who have questioned the value of not just our legal system, but what this country stands for and whether we still stand for the values we say we stand for and the values that we advertise throughout the world. And I, for one, if you've been following me any length of time, I spend a lot of time thinking about values, priorities, what do we say is important, what is important, what matters. The military, all the services have their own sets of core values, have their, have their own set of core values. They're not always good at maintaining them. And I'll be the last one to argue that this country is perfect at maintaining ours. But I believed as a young boy, I believed as a high schooler looking ahead to the future, I believed as a military member, and I believe now that this country remains one of the only ones on earth that could openly welcome and facilitate great success for 
the couple that was my parents. If you've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, especially, I don't remember which episode number it is, but it's titled, Everyone's Got a Plan Until They Get Punched in the Mouth. You know that my mother passed away when I was 14, August 1st, 1999, two weeks before I started high school. And so starting high school was difficult, of course, and that was a turbulent few months, few years for me. But when I think back to it, I don't remember until high school really thinking much about what I was going to do. College seemed to be the assumed given. Both my parents were college educated. I was very lucky to grow up in a home that was well-educated, well-read, interested in ideas and interested in, in the world. And so at the time, I didn't know enough to question college It wasn't necessary for me to question it. I was surrounded by kids who assumed they were going to go to college. But beyond that, what was I going to study? What was I going to do? I watched TV like any other kid. I didn't really play video games too much. I wasn't into too many hobbies. I was pretty sheltered as a young child. But over time, because of TV and because of other influences, I think, and I had a couple of friends in high school that talked about it, I started to think about joining the military. I have no military uh, on either side of my family. And so, you know, you might wonder where it comes from. There There are plenty of people who join the active duty military, who put on the uniform, who don't have predecessors to look back to. And then there are others some of whom I've met who can trace their military service lineage all the way back to the revolution, which is incredible to me. But in any case, every single person who joins the military joins joins for their own unique set of reasons. In my case, I thought it might be cool. It took me a long time to really figure out what it would mean I thought I might go to law school. I thought I might go to graduate school. I thought I might study history or political science. My father had different ideas. But as the military idea congealed in my mind and it started to become a a much more solid prospect, you know, and I started to get information and look at the service academies and ROTC, um, scholarships, what the education benefits are, what does it look like to enlist, what does basic training look like, when would I go, how do I contact a recruiter, all the things that you start to think about. I would say my dad was was supportive. There are, there are members of my family who didn't understand it. That's okay. But what I knew then, I didn't know much about the military. I originally wanted to join the Navy. I thought I was going to fly Hornets off of aircraft carriers in the Navy and then maybe go to law school and practice as a judge advocate for a few years, just like the TV show. And while that picture of reality didn't pan out, 
which I'm not upset about, by the way. <clears throat> but while that reality didn't pan out, what remained constant throughout my throughout the saga that was me trying to join the active duty military was why. And the why for me was simple. I owed a debt. I owed, in my opinion, a significant debt. This country welcomed my parents from two totally different parts of the world and gave them the freedom to find each other, court, get married, move to Ohio, have a child, and raise that child just like any other kid the way they wanted to, sent me to the schools they wanted to, moved to whatever neighborhood they wanted to, but ultimately give me a life unique to me, but I also think pretty unique to this country compared to where my parents came from at least. I owed a big debt back to the country that gave my parents so much and really enabled my existence. And I mean that in the literal sense. I owed a debt to this country and wanted to make good on it. Now, within that, I certainly had goals. I wanted to fly Hornets off aircraft carriers, right? I don't have the eyes, evidently, for the Navy, period. As, as soon as I was accepted to the Naval Academy, I, I turned around and received a letter that said I would never be eligible to commission into the Navy or Marine Corps because of my vision. I'm, I'm nearsighted. I wore, I've worn glasses since third grade, so... I, there's no getting away with, I can't cheat on an eye test. I can't even get close. I, I cannot do anything without wearing glasses. Applied for a Navy ROTC scholarship, received it, and then a week later, medically disqualified for your vision. You will never commission into the Navy or Marine Corps. At one point, had signed my name on the dotted line for every military service out there was an Army ROTC cadet, an Air Force ROTC cadet, a Marine officer option trainee. I thought I might go the legal route. I thought I might still fly. I thought I might go Army tanks. At one point or another, my, my mind was squarely in each one of those buckets. Because all I wanted to do was join the military in some capacity. I was on the officer path, so for better or worse, I was in college. I was trying to get through college throughout while I was trying to get past this medical hurdle. And so at that point, it was I took it as given, even though looking back, right, I could have dropped out of school, enlisted, and history would be completely different for me. But at the time, the goal was I need to find an officer program that's willing to just let me wear glasses and take me in. 
the story of my medical disqualification drama uh, really is for another day. But the point is my why was constant and my why is unique to me. Not to say that somebody else would not come to a similar conclusion based on their background. We have so many people who themselves have immigrated to this country who then choose to join the military. You can enlist prior to gaining U.S. citizenship and, in fact, enlisted military members that can, uh, that can expedite or give you a leg up, I should say. Maybe not a leg up, but it, it is part of the process to achieve citizenship in the United States if you enlist in the military. And certainly for the things that our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and guardians do for this country, many of them are seeking citizenship. And so perhaps they would say something similar to me, but I won't speak for anybody else but me. For me, my why was to pay back a debt. I owe this country a lot. I owe this country my life, quite literally. And so I was proud in some form or fashion to find my way into a uniform and to spend however much time I could on active duty serving in support of the men and women next to me and the core values of the service, the Air Force in my case, and of this country. Now I left active duty, the active duty Air Force in April, 2021 with 13 years of time. You may or may not think that I repaid the debt I asked myself that question several times over the course of the year that I was trying to prepare for the transition. And I don't have a good answer as to whether I paid the debt back or not. I don't know if 13 years is enough, if, you, if somebody like me should have gone to retirement or not, if the four-year commitment or the five-year commitment would have been enough. But that, I don't think, is a question I can ever answer, not definitively. I had to make a decision that was good for my family and myself and our future. But what remains, why I am happy I did it, why I'm happy I joined the military, and why I joined in the first place, first place remains. Now I was, I was motivated by what I got to do. I got my first choice job as a Minuteman operator. I enjoyed that job. I think I was halfway decent at it. I made some great friends. Maggie made some great friends as we were moving around the country. She herself spent four years on active duty and got tons of experience out of that, out of that time. But what remains is the debt that I owed, that I believe that I owed. So what does this story have to do with anything? You may or may not be interested in my story. You may or may not be interested in why I joined. But the reason I tell it is because I think the why for any military member is a far more interesting and compelling conversation point than simply expressing a thanks 
I think a why, the answer to that question is far more compelling, far more interesting, far more connective than a 10% discount at Applebee's or a 15% discount at the grocery store. Memorial Day is coming up on Monday, five, five days from now, four or five days from now. Memorial Day, what used to be called Decoration Day, the holiday, the, the observation goes all the way back to the Civil War. I didn't know until today, until I was doing research for this episode, that the history of Memorial Day is also wrapped up in the history of our national cemetery system, which was created to help accommodate the hundreds of thousands of troops who died during the Civil War. Memorial Day is, is traditionally, unofficially, the start of summer. I appreciate that. I enjoy that. We've already been grilling a bunch at the house. It's already been hot here in Central Ohio, but Memorial Day is traditionally the start of summer, and I think that's fine. I think that's great. But Memorial Day means something. The observance of Memorial Day means something, and I want to take a minute to make sure we all understand what Memorial Day is for and to distinguish it from Veterans Day. If you've heard this before, I'm happy. If you haven't heard this, my guess is you're in the majority of people. Maybe not. Memorial Day, which goes all the way back to the Civil War era, is observed to honor those service members who have fallen who have given the ultimate sacrifice, their lives in service to this country. Since the end of the Civil War in 1865, we have lost hundreds of thousands upon hundreds of thousands of men and women in uniform, in combat, in a variety of roles, in all the services all over the world. Memorial Day is an observation of the sacrifice each and every one of them gave. And the decision each and every one of them made to go into harm's way, not knowing if they would come home to their husbands, their wives, their parents, their brothers, sisters, their kids. Memorial Day, first and foremost, is to honor the fallen. Veterans Day, by contrast, is to honor everyone who wears the uniform or who has worn the uniform. But I will say I, I saw something on social media yesterday that I think put a fantastic point onto it. And if I can um, link to it in the show description, I will. But you, you may have already seen it or you may be able to find it by just searching online. But it was a photo, I think a painting, of a man leaning against the Vietnam War Memorial. And he appears older. He's leaning against it with one arm outstretched on the wall, and his head is lowered. And it's evident that he's in pain. 
and then there's writing across the, the picture. So the painting is this man standing against the memorial against the wall. That's the, the Vietnam War Memorial is a wall of names. This man is leaning against the wall and imposed, subimposed within the wall is an image of, I think, three or four soldiers who died in combat, who we lost. We lost more than 50,000 in Vietnam. And so the names engraved into that wall memorialize each soldier, each person we lost. And then the message of the, of the picture is this, Memorial Day is for them meaning the soldiers who died, the soldiers that are inside the wall, represented by the wall. Veterans Day is for him. The man leaning against the wall, trying to make contact, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually with the men he served next to, with the men that he lost So at this point, right, if, especially if you have not served, you might wake up on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. You might think more, it's more likely that I'm going to run into somebody who's been in the military or who is in the military. What do I do? What do I say? Well, I want to express my gratitude. I want to thank them. And, and that might be, and I can appreciate that. I do appreciate that. And I can see where it's tough to answer that question. If you genuinely want to express gratitude, what, what can you do? What can you say? So restaurants and stores all over the place provide discounts. You can get free tickets or super cheap tickets to things. Um, nonprofit organizations do all sorts of stuff around military bases. And all that stuff is, we, we appreciate it. I know service members who appreciate it um, and, and are just happy that the folks in their town, wherever they are, take an interest in them. But to be honest, the interest is superficial, right? A lot of times it doesn't go very far because I'll only, I, I know other folks who would say the same thing, but I'll only speak for me. Anytime someone has thanked me, it is one of the most awkward things ever. And it took me most of my active duty career to figure out what to say in response. And the only thing I could settle on was thank you. They say, thank you for your service, or I really appreciate what you did. And all I can say is, oh, thank you, Earl. Hey, I dismiss it and I move on to something else as quickly as humanly possible because it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. You don't want to talk too long. You don't want to hear stories. I personally am probably not the military person you picture, because I have not deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq. So already, I don't think I deserve the thanks because you, you think you're talking to someone who's been to Afghanistan and back, maybe. Maybe you asked me, well, what did you do in the Air Force? I did nuclear, nuclear missiles, nuclear weapons. Oh, well, thank you for your service. Because I tell you what, there, that's a way to end a conversation in a hurry. Yep, I deployed to North Dakota and Nebraska a bunch, and I operated nuclear weapons. I have fired a weapon before, 
I have used firearms before, but I did not carry an M4 into combat. I didn't carry an M9 for that matter into combat. I didn't wear a pistol or carry a rifle. I was so far down the other end, on the other end of the spectrum of conflict. I am not the tip of the spear guy. I am the blunt back end of the spear. My job is to end the war, not to fight it. A lot of people don't know what to say to that. And so the thank you comes off kind of stilted, kind of weird, and then we move on to something more interesting. The point's this. As we get close to Memorial Day and as we experience Memorial Day this year. If you feel compelled to thank someone for their service, consider instead of gratitude, expressing curiosity. Instead of saying thank you, ask them why. Why'd you do it? Why did you join? If you learned or if you know that they spent longer than, an, than one enlistment in the military or, or longer than their initial commitment in the military, if they did several tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, if they're a Vietnam veteran, if they're a Gulf War veteran from 1991, if they were in the Balkans in the 90s, if they flew during operations Northern and Southern Watch, regardless of the time period, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Granada, Panama, and many other locations that we don't know about or talk about. Regardless of where they were, where they're from, ask them why they did it and why they stayed. It might not be the easiest question to answer for them, but it is an important conversation, an important question for them. And it will give you so much more insight into the military experience it will probably teach you something about the military experience and about what military members go through that you didn't know before it does for me i ask that question all the time i was on active duty i joined the military for my own reasons and I still learn a ton about the military experience just by asking that question of a fellow service member, of a fellow veteran now. Memorial Day is about honoring our fallen. So as you grill out, as you hang with family, as you take the day off, hopefully, remember that that we are honoring those who gave the ultimate sacrifice People who knew, who made the decision to volunteer to put the uniform on, knowing that the greatest risk could be their life. Take a second and think about that. Take a second and think about 
what that sacrifice meant for future generations, for future service members. Despite that ultimate sacrifice made by millions over our country's history, men and women still join every day. So ask them why and learn something about the military experience and what you can do as a citizen to support your military beyond simply saying thank you and offering a discount. The last question uh, is a podcast that focuses on leadership, building better leaders to build a better future. And like anything, like myself, like you, like your personal and professional pursuits, this project is evolving. So I'm excited to bring to you the evolved last question over the next few weeks. I know I keep, keep it seems like I keep teasing the future and I don't put too much meat on that bone. but I've spent a lot of time thinking about not just what I'm doing here on this podcast, but what I'm doing here in general on this earth with the time that I have, with the experiences that I have, and with the path that I'm now on, whatever that path is and wherever it's leading. But for this week, coming up on Monday, I simply ask, that you think about our fallen service members because that's what Memorial Day is all about. And if you encounter a military member, don't start with thank you. Start with why. Ask them why. And regardless of what their answer is, you will learn something about them. You will learn something about the military. And then at the end, if you feel compelled to say thank you, well, then at least you know them and you know the person you're thanking. And it'll mean a world of difference to that person, I bet. The year is going by fast. We're getting to the end of May. June is the sixth month. We're about halfway through 2021 already. The world is opening up. The sun is shining. Hopefully where you are, it is raining where I am right now. But the sun has been shining. It's been warm. It's been busy. And no matter how hard the day gets, we are blessed. So that's all I have for you for this week. I am still coming to you with some awesome interviews in the next few weeks and an evolved version 2.0 of the last question, which I hope you enjoy. The ebook is still coming out 1st of June. I am still going to be drawing three people from my email inbox who sent me feedback on the podcast, a free copy of the ebook for you and every member of your team because leadership matters. Your people matter. And what you can do for them, how you can serve them, and how you can learn about them, learn about their why, will help you learn about yours, 
but will also help you serve them in a much more fulfilling way. So that's what I hope to give you, help you with as I publish this ebook. And that's what I continue to help others do, not just through this podcast, but through our message on social media, through the Enabled Word website. And as this project progresses, our focus is still going to be better leadership for a better future. Hope you have a great and safe Memorial Day weekend. I am thankful for each and every service member who will not enjoy the three-day weekend off with their families, but who will be on the line, deployed in CONUS or overseas, doing the job so that the rest of us can stay home, grill out, hang with family, and live in a place where an Indian grad student and a Cuban refugee can meet, get married, and have a kid. It's a pretty cool place to be. Have a great week. When you get a chance today, step outside, take a breath of fresh air, hug a loved one, and let them know how grateful you are to have them in your life. Lead well. We'll talk to you next week.